Hello, and welcome to the Kiskea Chapel Sermon Podcast. Kiskea Chapel is an international church in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, where we equip English-speaking believers to expand God's kingdom in our community and beyond. For more information about Kiskea Chapel, you can visit us on our website at kiskeachapel.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Stand with me as I read our text this morning. You know, it used to be a normal thing in churches that when the word of God was read, people stood to show a sense of respect. And that makes particular importance this morning because we're going to read a passage about a man named Isaiah, a prophet in the Old Testament who got a vision of God in the year that the king Uzziah died. Now Uzziah had been king in Israel for or in Judah, the southern kingdom, for 52 years, one of the longest kingdoms in ancient history. So they were so used to him that they were like, what are we going to do now that Uzziah's dead? The Assyrians had already invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and destroyed it, and now they were waiting to attack the southern kingdom where Uzziah had been king. So you can tell, you can feel the anxiety. Isaiah shows up in the context to see from God. So what now? What do we do now? And that's where the text tells us. So let me read it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. You can be seated. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? Kind of like the moment we're in right now where everybody's going, now what's going to happen next? That's where the southern kingdom was. Uzziah's dead. Assyria's about to invade. The northern kingdom has already fallen. What are you doing, God? My guess is Isaiah started out his prayer time kind of like you and I would. Well, God, what's going on? Could you let me in on the plan? Did you notice here that God doesn't let him in on any plan? He tells him who he is. That's the essence of this passage. Isaiah's vision of God, it says, he is high, he is exalted, he is seated on a throne, and then a phrase that's not that common to us, but it would have been to them. His train 
filled the temple. Now, you know what a train is when you wear a robe? Kings sometimes used to wear in ancient culture, some still today, they wear a robe to demonstrate their kingly authority. And then they have a long train that goes way on and on. I think I got a picture there. That's what a train looks like. Queen Elizabeth in England, by the way, they made such a big deal. It was the first televised coronation in the world. She had an 18-foot-long train that she drugged down the aisle before they made her Queen Elizabeth. (laughs) In the ancient world, the idea was the longer a king's train was, the greater his authority. At this time, the greatest kingdom in the world would have been Egypt, and so the king of Egypt would have had a massive, long train. But when Isaiah gets this picture of God, I want you to think about this for a second. It says his train filled the temple. Uh, This is an artist's rendering of what the temple at this time might have looked like. Uh, one of the questions is how tall it was because in some translations it makes it sound like it was 20 stories tall. You can kind of see that that's the building he's talking about. Isaiah would have had a vision of God in that building right there. That building's probably three to four times the size of this floor right here. And it says that his train filled the entire temple. If I had a chance... I would have tried to do that today. I would have tried to walk in here and go, okay, I'm going to have like a 10,000 meter long train and just drag it behind me and it fill here. But you couldn't even find a place to sit because his train filled the temple. God's robe is so massive, so extensive, so glorious that it fills the temple. And then comes something out of a science fiction book. We're told about these characters. By the way, we have some extra biblical mention of seraphim, but this is the only time they're mentioned in the Bible. Okay, the word seraphim literally in Hebrew meant the fiery ones, the ones on fire. And then he describes them. They had six wings. This is, uh, it's funny. I went through and looked at artists' renditions of it, and they all seemed so phony. But what Isaiah saw to him was intimidating. These seraphim flying around the throne of God and shouting back and forth to each other, holy, holy, holy. Now that phrase, holy, 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 is so important that the Jews even had a name for it, the trihegion, which meant the three great words, holy, holy, holy. There's only a few times in Scripture where this triple usage is put to play, and this is one of them. They cry out, holy, 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 and their voices are so thunderous that it literally shakes the footholds, the foundations of the entire temple. So this is like a massive, do I say it right, tremblemonte? This is something else. Isaiah has this amazingly vivid, amazingly fearful 
uh, sense of what's going on in this picture of God. And, and by the way, the only other place in Scripture where the trahegion is used is in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, it says that finally when the Lamb of God, Jesus, shows up for judgment, he's the only one worthy to open the book of life. And do you know what the elders in heaven do? They fall on their face and they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That's their cry. Now I want you to see here Isaiah's response. <laughs> this is the right response, by the way. By the way, at this moment, the world is not giving this response. We're pretending we have scientists and people that go, well, we can fix this. It's just a matter of time before we figure out an inoculation against COVID or we're going to wear masks or we're going to do all this stuff. Do, do you get a sense sometimes that this is laughing at us? That God's in essence saying to us, I know you think you're in control. You are not in control. You don't have all the answers. So Isaiah recognizes that. Look what he says. Woe is me. I am ruined. Do you know anybody or any culture in the world right now in the midst of our current crisis that's crying out, Woe is me. I am ruined. No. What we hear is people puffing their chest out and saying, well, here's what we need to do. Here's what's going to happen. Not Isaiah. Woe is me. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and I live in a culture of unclean lips. I'm in big trouble here. You know, I think there's times in history where God has unleashed a bit of his massive glory until someone on the earth goes, woe is me, I am ruined, I am unclean. Do you hear that today? Is that true for you today? Or are you waiting for some medical expert to tell us how we're going to fix this? Or the current president, or maybe more, the new president, if he ever leaves office. Isaiah's response to a cultural crisis was not, well, we got this under control. His response was, woe is me, I'm ruined, God. I am ruined before you. It is fear at the heart of his response. I know we don't like that word. Humans want to pretend that they fear nothing. But the Bible couldn't be further from that affirmation. It says, in fact, and we're going to go through a bunch of it many times over and over and over again. What's the beginning of true knowledge or wisdom? Fear. Fear is the beginning. If you do not have fear of God, you do not have a correct view of the universe. You, you just don't get it. You don't understand the God whose train fills the entire temple. You've got a wimpy, tiny, little God. 
Isaiah had a God so massive they could barely contain his train in the entire temple. I believe we've lost this, particularly in the Western church, whether it's Canada or America or uh, even Haiti. We've lost this sense that the beginning of wisdom is to fear God. So we fear other things. We fear earthquakes. We fear hurricanes. We fear 9-11 terrorism. We fear pandemics. But Isaiah's like, no, you don't get it. The beginning of wisdom is to fear God. And it's safe to say the church in the West has largely forgotten this fear of God. I want to just go through a few passages here. I could have put hundreds up here, but let me just give you a taste of some of the passages that talk about the fear of God. Again, Proverbs 1.17, Proverbs 9.10, Proverbs 19.23, they all say the same thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the starting point. In America, we would say, it's the ABCs of knowing God. Do you know how many of us claim to know the name of Jesus, but we decided to skip the ABCs. We don't have fear of God. We just went straight to God's my buddy. He's my friend. This is true. But you have to get there through the beginning. And the beginning is to fear God. Look at Psalm chapter 34. Come, my children. Listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Anybody here? I, I, I think there may be some people here, but most of us didn't get taught in school from our parents, maybe from our grandparents, to fear God. In fact, we got the opposite. We got people telling us, no, 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 God is just love. You don't need to fear him. This is the most common thing I will hear from people who do not yet know Jesus. They'll say, well, my God is not a God of judgment. He's a God of love. I go, look, he is indeed a God of love, but you don't get there by skipping the ABCs. The beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge is to learn the fear of God. Again, look at Psalm Chapter 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. Are you seeing a pattern here? I could do this for the whole morning. We could read passages that talk about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. Because it's a theme that comes over and over again. And so books like in the New Testament, the book of Romans, look what Paul has to say. Consider, therefore, two things. The kindness of God. I believe our culture's have absolutely thought about the kindness of God. But he also says, consider the sternness of God. God is not just love. He is love. In fact, he is perfect love. But he is not just love, and we have reduced him to a one-dimensional God of love only. But here Isaiah tells us, no, no, no. He's a God of holiness. Not just love, holiness. You cannot separate the two things. You cannot get to the love of God unless you begin with the ABCs of learning to fear God. 
consider God's kindness and, and God's sternness. Or take a look at what the author of Hebrews says. <laughs> this is not a popular view of God today. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God, how? Acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. First thing Moses learned when God revealed himself, he's a consuming fire. The fire burns and yet the bush is not burn up. Do you think consuming fire was meant to be God's all love? No. He's power. He is might. He is majesty. His train fills the entire temple. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have minimized God. We've turned him into a one-dimensional, kindly old grandfather. Or some of us have turned him into our little buddy. Jesus, my friend. But Jesus is my friend. In fact, he explicitly told the disciples, I no longer call you servants, I call you my friends. He says the same to you and I. But it begins with the fear of God. You don't get there by skipping that step. And we have cultures that have decided... We want to get straight to the love of God, but we don't want to deal with the consuming fire part. You cannot do that. We have turned God into a toothless kitty cat so we can pet him, but we're not afraid of him. Uh, I don't know how many of you have read this. Have some of you read C.S. Lewis's uh, fiction books, The Chronicles of Narnia? I know some of the kids will. Yeah. So, parents, if you don't understand, go ask your kids about this. Chronicles of Narnia is a bunch of uh, stories, fictional stories, that illustrate a little bit about God and his redeeming love for his people. The, the image of God in all these books is a gigantic lion named Aslan. And there is a great section in one of those books when the children hear about Aslan, they get lost. They go through a closet and it turns them into this magical area called Narnia. And they meet these beavers that can speak. <laughs> and so Mrs. Beaver begins to tell them about, oh, the king of the whole land is Aslan. We are waiting for the return of Aslan. And they're thinking, oh my goodness. So I love this quote. One of the little girls, Susan, says, oh... I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver replies, Then you will, dearie, and no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe? Asked Lucy. Safe, Mr. Beaver said. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. 
but he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. This is the vision of Isaiah. God is not safe. He is a consuming fire. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, according to the book of Revelation. And to be in his presence is to have this experience that Isaiah said, I am ruined. I'm in so much trouble. I should not be in your presence. I'm a man. I'm a woman of unclean lips. This is hard for us, isn't it? I want you to hear what Jesus talks about when he hears that people are afraid. (laughs) When the disciples get afraid, particularly of a storm at sea that they're in the middle of, remember Jesus stands and speaks to the storm, the wind and the waves, peace, be still, and they stop. Look what it says. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Let me stop there. Do you understand? COVID can only kill the body. Uh, Hurricanes can only kill the human flesh. Jesus, don't be afraid of those things. I will show you who you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has the authority to throw you into hell. We live in cultures where we shake our fists and say, God has no right. Jesus is saying, you better fear him because he has the authority and the right to throw you into hell if he so chooses. And you better fear him. (laughs) And then Jesus tells the other side, listen to this. Yes, I, I, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. This is what humans bristle at. We refuse to fear God. We want a God who's just love, nothing else, just love. Let me read to you a couple of quotes. These are worth reading. I think R.C. Sproul, the great theologian, put it this way. The most brazen lie of all is the lie that people tell themselves, I have nothing to worry about from the wrath of God. My God is a God of love. (laughs) A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite writers of all time, says it this way. No one can know the true grace of God who has not first known the fear of God. We sang a song. You might have missed the line. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. I want you to notice something in this passage here. Let me put it back up. You might not have noticed this contradiction. Because here in this one little passage, Jesus in the first part says, here's who you need to fear. Verse 5. But in verse 7, he says, fear not. It's like, which is it, Jesus? Are we to fear God or are we to fear not? It almost sounds like he's contradicting himself. What are you trying to tell us here? But this pairing of fear, fear not, is all over Scripture. 
Again, I could read all morning to us passages that say this. Let me read to you just a couple of them. First of all, it begins in Genesis 3. Remember, they eat of the tree, Adam and Eve do, and they go hide their nakedness in the garden. And God calls them out. He says, where were you? They said, well, we were what? Afraid. So we hid. God calls them out and says, you don't need to be afraid. And he clothes them with skins. It starts right off, Genesis chapter 3. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. It tells us the story about the shepherds at Christmas who are out tending their flocks. Do you notice what it says in the middle there? The Lord shone all around them and they were what? They were terrified. Wouldn't you be? They were terrified by this. But the angel then spoke to them. Oh, no, no. Do not be afraid. I'm bringing you good news. Fear, fear not. This is the pattern. We see it over and over again. Revelation chapter 1, at the end of the Bible, we're told about the Apostle John who has, like Isaiah, this vision of God seated on his throne. And it says, when I saw him, the Lamb of God, I fell at his feet, though dead. (laughs) Scared him to death. He almost fell down and died. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first, I am the last. The Alpha, the Omega. Fear me, fear not. Here's all I'm trying to say this morning. It's very simple. You cannot skip the fear part and sincerely get to the fear not part. You must begin, the beginning of wisdom is to learn to fear God. I know of no better time to do that than right now when we're asking the same question Uzziah was asking. What's going on in the world? What's going to happen next? It is time to say, God, I am ruined. I'm an unclean person. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know what's happening. That's when we need to get a true picture of the God of the universe, high and exalted, seated on his throne, surrounded by seraphim, crying out, holy, 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 and his entire train fills the whole temple. Again, Proverbs 1, 7. What's it say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, I want you to notice this. It's the beginning. It's not the end of knowledge. It's where you start. And those of us and those cultures that try and skip the beginning and get straight to the end are in for a heck of a shock. We're not prepared to be in the presence of Isaiah's God. He's too big for us. He's a consuming fire. We begin in fear and we end with God speaking to us, be not afraid. Again, let me say that again, because if you come away with anything this morning, I want you to hear this phrase. We begin in fear in order to end with fear not. We begin in fear in order to end with fear not. Well, 
I, I want to conclude by talking about what's it mean to fear God? What, what, what are you talking about? And, and there's so many things that could be said. I'm just going to say one. I'm going to say the simple principle is this. I have to learn to see my smallness in comparison to the vastness of God. Take a look at that painting there. You can't see it that well, but it's a painting of the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York. It's uh, one of the most famous paintings in history. It's by an artist named Thomas Cole. I think his name's up there. He started a school of artists called the Hudson River School. Prior to that, European paintings always had giant portraits of people. And so Thomas Cole, who was a committed follower of Christ, came along and he said, mm -mm, this is wrong perspective. We're painting humans as though they're giants. So what he wanted to do is start making paintings of the grandeur of God's glory in nature and comparing it to humans. You can't really see it, but can you see right in there, right there, one little person. Every painting in the Hudson River School, go, go look it up on the internet and you can see many different artists began to paint these massive, grand pictures of God's nature and his glory in a thunderstorm, in a wheat field, on a mountain with teeny, tiny, little people. Have you ever had that experience? Been up the mountains here? In Haiti, it's not hard to see God's glory in Haiti. <laughs> Have you been in some of the ocean spots around here where you go, wow, I am so tiny compared to the vastness of God's glory. And this is just a reflection of what he has created. It's not him. That's where we start. Moses had to start there. <laughs> When Moses gets his first picture of God, he has to take off his shoes and hide his face. He's so afraid before God says, don't fear, Moses. I'm calling you to go. Let my people go. Luke chapter 5. Peter had the same experience. Simon Peter's first encounter with Jesus begins in fear. He'd been fishing all night, we're told. And he caught nothing, and he's so discouraged. He's kind of given up. So he's winding up his nets on the shore when this man named Jesus shows up. And he says, hey, Peter. Peter's like, first of all, how do you know my name? He says, throw the nets out on the other side of the boat. And Peter's like, uh-huh, right. I'm like a pro fisherman. I know what I'm doing. And I've been out all night and I've caught nothing. Jesus is like, just humor me. Throw the net on the other side. So he does, and the net gets so full with fish that it almost turns the boat over and all of his fishing buddies are pulling that net in amazed. Now listen to what it says here. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, just like Isaiah, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I have unclean lips, and I live in a culture of people with unclean lips. Go away. So his beginning point also was fear. Jesus says to him, Peter, don't fear. He raises him up. He says, from now on, you're going to be fishing for men, for humans, not for 
fish in the ocean. All these are examples in the scripture where the relationship with God begins with fear and ends with God saying, fear not. Begins in fear, ends with fear not. Again, one of the greatest theologians in history, John Calvin, put it this way. He said, men are never duly touched and impressed with the conviction of their insignificance until they've contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. In other words, if I compare myself with other people, I can feel like I'm pretty big. But when I contrast myself with the vastness of God's majesty, I go, oh no, <laughs> I am very tiny. I'm very insignificant in the grand scheme of things. And yet God still says to me, fear not. This is the norm. We begin in fear, we end in fear not. Isaiah saw how small he was in comparison to the robes of God whose train filled the entire temple. And he said, woe is me, I am ruined. So how about you this morning? I know it's really easy. I do it. I'm not suggesting I don't. I, I do it almost all the time. I have to remind myself, hey, are you showing up to church? Go, I kind of like church today. No, no, no. Don't you dare do that. If you do that, you're telling me you never learned your ABCs. You never learned the beginning of knowledge is to fear God and to come into his presence with a recognition that he is great and I am small. The way you come to worship, not the preaching, not the music, not the temperature or the building or the grounds, that will not determine whether you grow in your faith. What will determine whether you and I grow in our faith is whether we show up appropriately small. If you show up to worship big, like, I don't really have anything to learn. I already know all this stuff. They're not going to wow me. You will leave very small. If you show up big, you leave small. On the other hand, if you appropriately show up to worship, as the book of Hebrews says, with reverence and awe, if you see your smallness in light of the vastness of God, you will leave bigger. But you must begin in fear in order to sincerely hear Jesus' word, fear not, I am with you. Fear not, I am with you. Here's how Jesus put it. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Did you come to worship this morning humbled or exalted? you come with your arms crossed, God proved me something? Or did you come like Moses, like Isaiah, like Peter? Oh man, I am ruined. I'm in the presence of the holy God. I'm undone. Woe is me. It will determine whether worship for you enlarges your life or minimizes your life. Again, remember that quote. Mrs. Beaver said, oh, he isn't safe. <laughs> of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. His train fills 
the temple. In a second, after we pray, we're going to stand and sing a song that uh, one of the greatest hymns in church history, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And the question is, will you come and sing that appropriately? recognizing fearfully that you are in the presence of the God of the universe? Or were you singing like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I know this one. Holy, 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 blah, 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 blah. It's up to you. If you come and humble yourself before God, you will be exalted. If you exalt yourself before God, you will be humbled. Let's pray. Father, give us the beginning of wisdom. We lack so much wisdom in the world today. We have so much knowledge, so much information, and so little wisdom. Maybe it's because we thought we could skip this step of fearing you. Father, restore to us the appropriate sense of our smallness in light of your vastness. Help us to once again get Isaiah's vision of a God whose train fills the entire temple. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope this message was helpful for you. If you're in Haiti, join us on Sunday mornings where English speakers from all backgrounds, missionaries, diplomats, Haitians, expats, come together to worship, to connect, and to have fellowship with one another. You can find more information about our location, our service times, and our Sunday school program for all ages at our website at kiskeachapel.org. Or shoot us an email at chapelq at gmail.com. That's chapelq at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.